Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. These are the words of life. I want to start with a direct quote from the training workbook that we've used with our congregational care ministers. No one person, lay or clergy, can address all the hurt of a congregation or community. Caregiving is a group effort. Caregiving is a group effort. Well, as David mentioned, I did grow up in this church. I grew up right here in Tulsa, and I had the benefit of having all four of my grandparents live within a two-square-mile radius of our house. That was a benefit to me because I got to know these people intimately. I didn't just see them twice a year. I saw them all the time. And it was a benefit to my parents. Anybody who's raised children knows that the more hands available you have to drop everything at a moment's notice and come watch the baby or the toddler or the five-year-old or the eight-year-old, the better off you are. So as Kathy and I got older, the tables turned, and we were available at a moment's notice to go and help our grandparents who were by that time getting pretty old and pretty frail. Now, my venable grandparents joined this church in the 50s, and some of you remember them. My Livesey grandparents joined a church three blocks away. So again, we were all very close. And even though we went to two different churches, we found our way to First Cafeteria at Utica Square almost every Sunday. Table of eight. And then we could compare sermons and songs and anthems and so on. My grandmother, Venable, died in 1987 on a Friday, the last day of eighth grade for me. I woke up that morning, I went into the kitchen to pour myself a bowl of cereal, and I realized that my father wasn't home. The phone call had come, and the voice on the other end of the line was the night sitter who said, Mrs. Venable has expired. My mother looked at me and told me what had happened and through tears said, your father doesn't have any parents anymore. And we both stood there and cried next to the extended leaf of our little kitchen table. Plans were made, relatives arranged to come in from out of town and the funeral was set for that Monday morning in the Rose Chapel. They used to print the death notice as well as the address of the person who had died in the newspaper. Do you remember that? So everybody in town knew that 704 South Richmond was going to be empty from 10 to 11 on Monday morning. 
And I guess if you do want to break into someone's home, you can still figure that out from an obituary. Your friends, whose address you know, will be gone from their house. So one helpful thing to do when someone dies is to offer to sit at the house during the service. Sylvia Tours, one of the matriarchs of this church, offered to do that right off. My mother said, yes, please, thank you. Juanita Maciel called and said, what can I do? My mother said, we sure love that big sheet cake you make, you know, the chocolate kind with the frosting and the pecans. Could you make that for us? And roundtable class got the word, and there was food, and there was food, and there was more food. Those in the married folks class who were still able enough brought food and more food and more food. The day of the funeral, I got up and I put on a light Georgette dress that my mother had just bought me. Short sleeves, magenta background, little white flowers all over it. I remember sitting in the Rose Chapel. I remember the towering presence of my Uncle Fred, my two beautiful cousins, who I'm still trying to emulate in hair and makeup even now, sitting on the row with us. And then somehow I remember back, being back in those pews three hours later in shorts and a t-shirt with the rest of the chapel choir listening to Mr. Dean who stood there in his polo shirt, khakis, and sunglasses tucked into the placket as he told us, wherever we go on this chapel choir tour, McDonald's, someone's home, church basement, or a sanctuary, you represent the Boston Avenue Methodist Church. And we took that seriously. And I had the benefit of getting on an MKNO bus right then and taking off and having great teenage adventures and singing and growing spiritually and gaining a little bitty teeny tiny bit of independence as we went from Tulsa all the way to Chicago through Missouri and Iowa while my parents stayed home and dealt with the business details of a recent death and made plans to drive up to Chicago to bring my sister home from a year at Northwestern University. We didn't have cell phones back then, so it was a surprise to me that my parents showed up at our very last performance in Sullivan, Missouri, which, if you don't know, is just off I-44 between here and St. Louis. We processed in from the back, and I remember thinking, the backs of those three heads look awfully familiar over there. <laughs> so they got to see our concert, and then they planned to come the next night to the home concert that we had right down here on risers here in the sanctuary. I got all ready with my button-down Oxford cloth shirt, maroon bow tie, it was the working girl era, blue poplin skirt, and sensible black shoes. That was our uniform, and we came to the concert, but mom didn't come. She had had a call from the Georgian Court nursing home that her father, my grandfather, Livesey, was near the end, and someone needed to be there. So she missed the concert, but she had seen it the night before, and she's seen it several times on VHS since. <laughs> we had a great concert. We had a party at Rusty Schillinger's house afterwards. And we even threw Mr. Dean in the pool 
which was okay because we let him take his watch off first. Which kind of ruins the whole thing. And I went home and went to bed and heard my mother come in about midnight. The next morning, I walked into the kitchen to pour myself a bowl of cereal and noticed that my mother wasn't home. My father said, your papa Olivesi died last night. The next couple of days were a blur of busyness, and then it was time for another funeral. But in that blur, Juanita Maciel appeared at the door without calling and said, Oh my goodness, two deaths in ten days? What can I do? My mother, sleep-deprived and delirious, thought of one very practical thing. I took Bryce's suit to the cleaners. Would you pick it up? Juanita said, sure. Sylvia Tours called and said, I will watch the house during the funeral. <laughs> My mother said, this time I've got a four-year-old second cousin, Cedar John, who needs a place to stay. Would you watch him? Sylvia said, sure. I wore a light Georgette dress with a magenta background and little white flowers all over it. This time we were in the chapel of the First Christian Church. And afterwards, we came back to our house for a big lunch that included roundtable food and no creed but Christ, disciples of Christ food this time. And after everyone went home and the dishes had been washed, my parents both had to figure out how to get up the next morning and go on with their lives. They didn't let on, but any psychologist would tell you that the sock of meteorite to a family of two deaths in 10 days is an incredible stress and a very hard thing for a couple or a family to get over. My mother said then, and she continues to say now, I don't know what people do who don't have a church. I don't know what people do who don't have a synagogue or a mosque or a temple. I don't know what people do who don't have a loving faith community around them to show up and bring cake and watch the house and have unnumbered conversations over Sunday school coffee and call up and take the eighth grade daughter out to Big Splash for the afternoon or to a movie to get her out from underfoot. I don't know what people do who don't have a faith community. No offense to Reverend Art McGrew or Reverend Richard Ziegler who did the service for my grandfather, Livesey, but they were only part of a healing team that brought my family back to wholeness through that summer of intense grief. They did very well at the part they were supposed to play as ministers. They prepared for wonderful services, and they checked up on us afterwards. They kept an eye out for us, and who knows, they may have been the phone call behind some of those people who called to say, let me bring dinner again. Let me take Amy someplace. Let me just ask you how you're doing. But it was an army of lay people who were not trained, who were not certified, but who loved us and who knew this is what you do when you do that prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness thing down here at the altar of the church. I was raised with the idea 
that bad things will happen to you in life, but God will be right there with you all the way through it. And I'm pleased that I had that teaching because I think a lot of people were raised to believe that if you just pray hard enough, what you want will happen. And if you have enough people on your side praying for the same thing, grandma will survive and your marriage will last and you will not lose your job. And then when grandma doesn't survive and your marriage doesn't last and your job is over, it's easy to say, God doesn't love me or there is no God, therefore I've turned my back on God. God gave up on me, so I give up on God. Maybe it was because I was raised by people who actually were born in the 1800s. Not my mother and dad. I'm talking about my grandparents. <laughs> They're looking really good. <laughs> the influence of those much older people who came from almost another planet, it seemed to my sister and me, before cars, before telephones, before running water, before electricity. They knew about death. They knew what stillborn meant. They knew what it was like to see someone die before their eyes working on the farm. And they weren't kept from death. They had been close to a dead body or two and knew it was just part of the cycle of life. And they knew that hard things would happen, but God will be with you. And in the sweet by and by, they will meet on that beautiful shore. So the Congregational Care Team is an organized, trained, and soon-to-be-consecrated team that focuses their efforts on doing that ongoing work of care when people's lives fall apart. They are the very hands and feet of Christ when you are going through a time of trauma in your life. They know that bad things are going to happen to everybody, and they know that it's the church's job to see you through those times. Peter Gomes was a professor at Harvard University who taught theology for 30 years. He's since died, but his great writings live on. And I got this quote out of the book, The Scandalous Gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes that hope is not merely the optimistic view that somehow everything will turn out all right in the end. Hope is the more rugged, the more muscular view that even if things don't turn out all right, we endure through and beyond the times that disappoint or threaten to destroy us. A genuine hope, a hope worth having, is forged upon the anvil of adversity. Hope seems a whole lot less silly and pointless if you think of it as a muscular emotion that's forged upon the anvil of adversity. If you get through life with no adversity, tell me what kind of vitamins you're taking because it doesn't happen to many of us. So when we join the church, when we walk through the door of the church, we make the first step on the road towards having a faith community that will care for us and towards being enabled to, have a, to be one of those people who cares for others. This team that was assembled before I even took the job last year is made up of people 
some of whom have been in the church for a long, long time and have forged their muscles on the anvil of taking people, taking care of people throughout their lives. And then others do have letters after their names, MSW, PhD, and so on. I'm so blessed to go to these monthly meetings where I sit around a table with seven or eight people who can teach me how to be the pastoral care minister. And we laugh. We have fun at our meetings. I love a meeting like that. We share, we give each other ideas, we talk about people we need to help, and we talk about what things have been working and what things haven't been working. We talk about how when you walk into a hospital room, you never know what you're going to find. You never know if the person will say, I'm so glad you're here, or I don't want to talk. Or if they'll say, please don't come, I'm right in the middle of blank, use your imagination. And then we say, great, the church is thinking of you. It's all right. We are not there to heal you of your cancer or heal you of your Parkinson's or heal you of your broken knee, but we are there to be the hands and feet of Christ and to be God's presence through human hands. In our scripture reading today, we read about this man with a withered hand, however we would translate that in present-day medical terms. We hear that his hand was restored. The text does not say Jesus healed him. It says his hand was restored. That passive voice takes the blame off of Jesus when these detractors are waiting for him to foul up and break a law. Jesus could easily stand up in a court of law and say, I didn't heal this man. God did. All I told him to do was stretch out his hand, and God did the rest of it. We anticipate and expect divine action, and we know always that God is the healer, whatever form the healing will take. Our job of caring for the congregation is never finished. I can never go home on any evening of the week and say, we took care of everyone's needs today. Now I'm going to watch Big Bang. (laughs) I never feel like the job is entirely done, and neither does anyone else. And I'm afraid our job will grow a little bit harder as we age. Bishop Kenneth Carter wrote recently that by 2050, 16 million people will probably have some form of dementia. Currently, 5.5 people in North America are suffering from some version of dementia. That means 15.7 million adults care for someone who has the disease. So who are we to be as the church as we move into a time of the baby boomers growing older and facing things like dementia and physical debilitation? Well, Carter writes, the church bears witness to human dignity and worth that transcends mental, physical, and emotional capacities. We are more than our intellectual and physical capabilities. We are beloved children of God and people with dementia deserve to be treated as such. We certainly have always stated this in our respite care program when we know that children with developmental disabilities 
are children of God and deserve to be treated as such. Often we fall into the trap of thinking after we've visited someone who has dementia, they won't even remember that I've been here. They didn't recognize me. They didn't even remember it when I said, Boston Avenue Church? But Carter goes on to say, experience and research indicate that feelings created from presence, touch, hymns, and affirmation endure, even when recall is absent. Visitation creates positive emotions and bonding even when the visitor is not recognized. You never know how much good you're going to do. You never know how 30 years later, 31, how that chocolate sheet cake and your trip to Globe Cleaners is going to be mentioned in a sermon or even remembered. You just never know, do you? And we bank on that, that the good things we try to do will be remembered and the foul-ups will be forgotten and maybe learned from as we go on. So think about this team when you face a job loss or the end of your marriage or a rocky time with your teenage child or a parent that's going to need your daily care. Don't ever feel like the church has turned its back on you. Sometimes we just need to be thumped on the head and told, I need help. Sometimes we need a phone call. Sometimes we need specifics. But we're going to try to do our very best to be there for you. The great thing about having a team is that if you don't care for me much, there's seven or eight other people you could talk to. Or if you get paired up with someone that you just don't bond with, you have other options too. I'll say this again. No one person, lay or clergy, can address all the hurt of a congregation or community. Caregiving is a group effort. I don't know what we would have done without Reverend Art McGrew or Reverend Richard Ziegler. And I don't know what we would have done without Juanita Maciel and Sylvia Tours and Sheila Parr and Gail Teeter and all the other people in the roundtable class that I don't have time to mention in four minutes and 35 seconds. I don't know what we would have done with all of you who called and came by and took the kid out of the way and gave my parents time to recuperate. I don't know what I would have done without the legacy of two grandparents whose memory lives on in the hearts of some of you and others of you who are patient enough to listen to my stories about them when it's my time to tell. None of us has to go through any of this alone. Well, don't feel like your problem is not meriting attention. We want to be there for everybody. We want people to keep coming back. And it's all about taking turns. When someone has taken their turn with you and really showed that they care, you know you can easily turn around and do it for them. One of my best girlfriends, and I hate saying girlfriends because she's got a PhD and she's over 40, but what, one of my best female friends who has a PhD and is over 40, when her father died about 10 years ago, she was living in Stillwater. Her mother was living here in Tulsa. And her fiance was staying three houses down at his brother's house. 
the call came that Mr. Smith had died. And so my friend's fiance, without calling, walked down the street and knocked on the door and said, I've heard the news. I'm here to clean your bathrooms. And he went to work cleaning the bathrooms of that house, knowing that this family, with all their extended family from Ada, would be coming in for this person's funeral. And I said when I heard this story, if you have any doubt about marrying this guy, get over it. <laughs> He's a keeper. If you can't think of what to do, you could always show up with a scrub, scrub brush and some magic bubbles and say, I'm here for whatever you need. And sometimes when you don't know what to say, the best thing to say is, I don't know what to say. But seeing the face, the name tag, hearing the voice of someone who loves you is pretty much all you need to do at those times. Don't ever avoid reaching out to someone because you can't figure out what to say or do. If people decide to marry folks because they scrub their mother's toilet, then you know how important those little things are. No one person, lay or clergy, can address all the hurt of a congregation or community. Caregiving is a group effort. Being a person of faith is a group effort. And thank God for the group. Amen.